Morning, church. Let's pray. Father, it is a wonderful thing to worship you together, to get just a foretaste of what eternity will be like. All of your people gathered around your throne, worshiping you, adoring you, and reveling in the truth that you have redeemed us from our sin through the sacrifice of your risen and ascended Son. We look forward to that day, and we look forward now to continuing our worship by opening our Bibles and considering your Word. Father, we are frail of mind and timid of heart. Perhaps we are obstinate in our attitudes. We pray, Father, that you would help us with all of those things this morning as we study. You would grant us to understand the Scriptures. You would grant us to boldly obey it with with hearts that love you deeply. We pray for your Holy Spirit's ministry to us in this way this morning. And we ask for it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Our text this morning is a doozy, 4.14 through 10.25. Now, we, we will not read all of that uh, to, to begin this morning. We'll, we'll begin with just a few verses in chapter 4. So as you find your place there, stand with me, please. We'll read verses 14 through 16 in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You may be seated. I wish I had the time this morning to tell you all about the first car I ever bought. I don't have that time. Maybe those of you who are in my home fellowship group, you can hear the whole saga this evening. Some of you may not believe it anyway, but I'll just say a few things about it. It was, it was called the Hellcat. I named it the Hellcat and not because it was fast, but because I was convinced that it was my first brush with the demonic, and I'm not kidding. There's a lot to say about it. It looked like a normal car when I bought it, but by the time I sold it, even, even though it got me where I, I wanted to go, by the time I sold it, it essentially looked like it was, it was rotting like a piece of mechanical flesh from the inside out. Something, something out of a Stephen King novel. 
Now, if, if I had it with me here, I sold it, I sold it to some stranger and laughed as I walked away. But if I had it here this morning and I had it parked next to my, my current vehicle, and I were to, like Mr. Miyagi to Daniel San, say to any one of you, choose. All of you would choose my current vehicle. Because it's just, it is just superior. Anyone looking at the two would say, oh, that's the superior vehicle. We might have one or two people, just out of morbid fascination, take the Hellcat. And it would get you where you wanted to go. But you would regret it. Because my current vehicle is obviously superior. Now, today, hold on to that for a second. Today, we're taking a bird's eye view of the third main section of Hebrews, which is 4.14 through 10.25, where the author is, is arguing that Jesus' high priesthood is superior to that of the Old Covenant. Now, some of us may, may not be familiar with what priests do, so very quickly, here's, here's, here's why you need a priest. A priest exists because man is far from God. We were created to know and enjoy God in close fellowship with Him, but due to our own rebellion, we're separated from God, which Ephesians chapter 2 describes as deadness in trespasses and sins. We are all conceived dead in our trespasses and sins. And this is humanity's definitive problem, separation from God. All of our other problems flow from that definitive problem. And we need, then, if we're going to be what God has created us to be, function as fellowshippers with Him, then we have to get from point A to point B. We have to get from a state of estrangement from God to a state of reconciliation and fellowship with God. A priest exists in order to bring people near to God, to get them from point A to point B, from estrangement to reconciliation. And there are many purported mechanisms in this world that will promise that they will do that for you. They're they're like functional priests promising to get us to God or a God in some sense. Other world religions would certainly fit that description. So some might say to you, just use Islam to get from point A to point B. Use Buddhism. Use Old Testament Judaism. Use your own self-styled approach. Just come up with something. You, you get yourself from point A to point B. For, for others, their priest is a bit more functional. And their God maybe is something less defined. And so they might say, comfort is my God. I have to have that God. And so I seek to get my God through various priests like drugs, sex, electronics. And these are like my functional priests that get me to my God of choice. The author of Hebrews repeatedly says about Jesus, the priest, that he is better. He's better. He is superior. Now, a question that we want to pay attention to this morning as we walk through chunks of this text is, in what sense is Jesus superior to other priests? Is He superior to other priests in the same sense that my current vehicle is superior to my first vehicle? That is, will other priests actually get me where I need to go, which is fellowship with God? 
Is Jesus superior just in the sense that he's got some better features? Or is it the case that Jesus is superior in a completely different sense? The author of Hebrews argues that there is one God. Everything that he writes in this book assumes that that's the case. There is one God and there is only one priest who can actually bring us near to God. There's only one. The only priest who actually reconciles sinners to God is the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And so he, he pushes hard to move us to hold fast our confession of this great high priest. Jesus is superior in that he is the only one. Now this whole section is, is held together by one overarching exhortation that the believer should, as I've already mentioned, hold fast and approach God because Jesus is the great high priest. If you have, if you have notes, if you scanned the QR code earlier this morning and you have those notes, that's the first point in your notes. Hold fast and approach because Jesus is the great high priest. Now look with me again at where we started this morning, 4.14. We're not going to take the time to read those verses again, but just scan through there very quickly and then hold your finger there and go over to chapter 10, verse 19. Chapter 10, verse 19. Chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 was read for us earlier this morning in, in the middle of our, our, our singing. Now, I won't point out all the similarities between these two passages, but there's a correspondence between the two passages which, which seems to be intentional. You've got the same words, and, and, and it's more obvious the same Greek words if you're reading the Greek text. The same words are used to make the same dual exhortation. We have a dual exhortation. It's got two pieces to it. And that exhortation, once again, is hold fast your confession and draw near or approach God through Christ. Both passages ground that exhortation in the priestly work of Jesus Christ. And these two passages, 414 through 16 and 1019 through 25, these are like bookends on the end of this big section that we're talking about this morning. And in that, that larger section, right in the middle, he's telling us why we should hold fast to Christ and draw near. Why? And it's because of what he has done as a high priest. He is the superior high priest. Continue to confess Him and take advantage of the reconciliation that He's won. Now, go back to 4.4. Hold your place in, in, in 10.23. I'll point out just a couple of things that are similar about these two passages. In 4.14, we read, Let us hold fast our confession. And then back in 10.23, He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. These are the same words. And that's the author's way of saying to us, Look, you need to cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith. Don't doubt the work of Christ. Don't doubt that, that, that His way is the only way. Be ever more convinced of it and continue to confess this with your mouth and your heart and your life. Jesus is the only way to God's eternal rest and I trust Him. That's what He's trying to move us to say. Alright, now 4.16 4.16, he says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And then if you go back to 10.22, he 
10.22, we read something extremely similar. Let us approach, and that's actually the same verb as draw near. Let us approach or draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Draw near to God. This is an intriguing part of the exhortation because it makes clear to us that there are present benefits to the work of a Christ who is currently enthroned in heaven. Even now, we can enjoy fellowship with God, drawing help and strength in this life so that we are able to persevere to the end. Both of these exhortations are grounded in the superior priesthood of Christ. You've got bookend, bookend, and in the middle, convincing arguments that Jesus is the superior priest. The bulk of chapters 5 through 10 are dedicated to explaining the nature of Jesus' priesthood and why it is superior to everything else. Beginning in 5.1 and continuing through 7.28, the author begins to argue that we should hold fast and approach because Jesus' priesthood is superior. His priesthood is superior. That's the second point in your notes. Hold fast and approach because Jesus' priesthood is superior. The priestly order of the, the old covenant was the Levitical priesthood. Okay? Levitical priests were priests by lineage. They were, they were descended from Levi. Jesus' priesthood is of a different order. It's of the order of Melchizedek. Not due to lineage, but rather due to the power of an indestructible life. Jesus, Jesus is, is coming about with a completely different priestly order. And Psalm 110, which was read for us at the beginning of our time this morning, is, is very prominent in the, the reasoning of the author of Hebrews as he makes his, his way through chapters 10 through, through, I'm sorry, 5 through 10. He quotes Psalm 110 in 5.5. 5. So look at 5.5 5 with me. Hebrews 5.5. 5. So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said to Him, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. As He also says in another place, and this is from Psalm 110, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now when we were back in, in Hebrews chapter 1, we noted that this same psalm, Psalm 110, tells of a coming Davidic king. Its opening verses are about this, this coming king in the line of David. And here we see that the same psalm, Psalm 110, teaches that this Davidic king is also going to be a priest, but not according to the order of Aaron, or not according to the Levitical priesthood. Rather, he is, once again, he is of the order of Melchizedek. And if you want to take some notes and, and read about Melchizedek later, you just jot down Genesis 14. and You'll read all about Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is both this Davidic king and this Melchizedekian priest. They are the same person. They are the Son of God, Jesus. And I'll just quickly mention here, if you, if you look at 5.11, you might put your finger on 5.11 and then turn and look over to the end of chapter 6, 6.20. 5.11 through 6.20 is something of an aside. He's, he's taking a bit of a pause from, from his argument and he's going to talk about something else. Look with me at 5.11 for just a moment. 5.11, about this, and, and he's talking about Jesus, Melchizedekian priesthood. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. 
And that reality, their, their inability to keep up with him biblically, leads him then to this rather extensive section, 511 through 620, this extensive section of both warning and assurance. And since it's something of, a, of an aside from, from his main flow of thought in these chapters, we're going to leave that for later messages. Okay, we'll come back to 511 through 620. But he picks up the flow of his thought regarding Jesus, Melchizedekian priesthood in 7.1. So, so you might scan over to 7.1. And the author, the author argues, or he reasons from Genesis 14... That Melchizedek's priesthood was superior, was superior to the Levitical priesthood of the Old Covenant because Levi came from Abraham and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. You with me? Levi came from Abraham and Abraham paid tithes or, or did a, this respectful gesture to Melchizedek. So in a sense, Levi who was in the loins of Abraham, the author argues, he paid tithes to Melchizedek, indicating the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood over the Levitical priesthood. Now, let's, let's pause for just a second and go back to our, our main question that we're considering this morning. What should we think of the difference between these two priesthood, priesthoods? Jesus is of a particular order, Melchizedek. Then there's this, this older order, the order of Levi, and the author is obviously arguing that, that Jesus, Melchizedekian priesthood, it's better. But in what way is it better? Is Jesus' priesthood superior to the Levitical priesthood in that He does the same thing but just does it better? Is that the case? Will the Levitical priesthood, will it still get me there? Will it still reconcile me to God, but Jesus will just do it more efficiently or with more style? Is that how Jesus is superior? That's an important question. Because if the Levitical priesthood will still get me there, then in the end, this is really just a question of preference. Do I prefer Jesus or do I prefer the old clunker? Which do, which do I like better? Well, in Hebrews 5, through 28 the author explains exactly what it means for the old priesthood that a new Melchizedekian priesthood has been appointed. The big picture message is that because there is a new priest of a different order, that itself means that the old order of the Levitical priests and everything attached to it, everything attached to it, including the law, the covenant, the sacrifices, all that has gone away. It's not a thing anymore. And his argument here is that, is that the coming of the new priesthood in Christ, that, 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 that new priesthood, it doesn't just mean more options, as if to say, oh, oh good, well, we, we, we can either go with the Levites or we can go with Christ. We, we, we can take the old car or we can take the new car. No. The author of Hebrews is saying Christ's appointment as a high priest means the old order has gone away. We don't have that anymore. And that's essential for us to understand. It's essential for us to be thinking when we say things like, Jesus is superior, Jesus is better. When we say that, when the author says that, Jesus is superior, that is not to say that Jesus is the better of two or more available options. Rather, Jesus has superseded all others. That is, He has, he has risen above them in such a way that they are no longer a thing. Jesus is 
is the only game in town. Now, look at 7.18. 7.18 and 19 is where this is made very explicit. For on the one hand, a former commandment, and there he's talking about the law and its priesthood. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. He's very clear here. The, the old covenant, its priesthood, everything attached to it, has been set aside. What has been put in its place? A new, better hope through which we draw near to God. Formerly there was a priesthood. There were, there were sacrifices. There was law, covenant. It could not perfect the sinner, he says. And what he means by that, when he says, could not perfect the sinner or perfect his conscience, he'll, he'll use that language later. What he means by that is, that old system could not qualify the sinner to draw near to God. All of that, therefore, has been set aside in favor of this better hope, Jesus Christ, who does make a way for sinners, who does bring the sinner near to God. And let's not forget that man's fundamental need is to be reconciled to God, to be brought to God. That's what a priest does, and the author is beginning to argue here, Jesus is the only one. So just to be clear, when we say hold fast and draw near to Christ because His priesthood is superior, we mean Jesus' priesthood is better because it's the only game in town and it works. How it works will become more clear as we go along. So, so we, we, we just can't say, well, I've got multiple options. And, and one option may be good for me and another option may be good for you. That is not how it works. You do not have multiple options. It is not the case that both Christ can make you right with God or you can just get your act together and be a good person. That's not an option. That's not a priest that's going to get you to God. You cannot get your act together and make yourself right with God. Similarly, we can't say, I can go the way of Christ or I'll just take the avenue of Islam. That won't get you there. It's a false god in Islam anyway. It's not, it's not even God. End of the day, it won't do it. We, we, we cannot say, I, I can trust Jesus for salvation or I'll just make sure that I go to church every time the doors are open. Won't work. Jesus alone is, is the great high priest. The only way to be made with God, be, be made right with God and to enter God's rest through faith is through faith in Jesus Christ. He, he's, he's the only way. Next, the author argues that we should hold fast and approach because Jesus' priesthood offers a better covenant. His priesthood offers a better covenant. And this comes in chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Some of us may not be familiar with what a covenant even is. Well, a covenant is a solemn binding agreement between two parties. And verse 6 teaches that Jesus has become the mediator of a better covenant enacted on better promises. And we, we might think then, well, better than what? Better than the old covenant. The old covenant was a covenant whereby God promised to be Israel's people, um, He promised to be Israel's God, caring for them, providing for them, protecting them, loving them, and the people then promised to be 
Israel's people, loving Him, obeying Him, serving Him, following Him. The Old Covenant had problems that the the author of Hebrews brings out for us. The Old Covenant was unable to bring people to God for several reasons, one of which is that it did not change human hearts. Our separation from God is due to deep-seated, heart-level aversion to knowing, loving, and following Him. There is not a human being born on this planet that is anything like a spiritual blank slate on which experiences are written that make them hate God. No, we are conceived this way because we're descended from Adam. And any covenant then that is going to accomplish God becoming our God and our becoming His people is going to have to take care of our hearts. And he cites Jeremiah 31 in chapter 8. He notes that the old covenant couldn't be kept by the old people. Why not? Because they hated God. They had this heart problem. These dead, stony hearts that want nothing to do with God. Additionally, in verse 12, he implies that the old covenant offered no real forgiveness of sin. So so what the people had under the old covenant, you've got a bunch of people dead in their trespasses and sins, unable even to want God, much less obey Him. And you've got a covenant that leaves the unforgiven unforgiven. The new covenant in Christ's blood, by contrast, it promises to change the heart. Look at the middle of verse 10, 8-10. Here he's quoting Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant. And he writes, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. See, this, this new covenant in Christ's blood, it gives, it gives people a new disposition toward God so that that person now wants to know God, wants to love God, wants to serve God. And verse 11 notes that, that everyone in this new covenant will actually know God, not potentially know Him, but they will actually know Him, actually be reconciled to Him. And how is that? How is it that they can be reconciled to God and know Him in that way? It's because of what this, this, this new covenant promises, which is forgiveness of sin. Everyone in this covenant will be reconciled to God because their sin will be forgiven. The central component of the new covenant is that God offers a mechanism for true forgiveness. Now, think about this. He hasn't gotten into the, the nuts and bolts of how Jesus does all this yet, but consider the implications Even even just at this point, consider the implications. If we choose to go another way, whether that's to embrace the old covenant or to embrace any other purported avenue of eternal hope, we will be sorely unprepared on Judgment Day. Because all of those other covenants, all those other priests, they don't do what you need them to do, which is bring you near to God. And so if we take one of those other avenues, we will approach the judge on the last day, still dead in our sins, still unforgiven, and doomed to eternal punishment. Again, the the old covenant is no longer in force. And and, and all other human philosophies, attempts at self-help, etc., they are all laughable as means of approaching God because They're not prescribed by God. God tells us how to approach Him, and He's given us one way. It's the new covenant in Christ's blood. So, 
how does Jesus in his new priesthood as a part of this new covenant, how does he make it possible for us to approach God? Well, the author next teaches that we should hold fast and approach because Jesus' priesthood offers a better sacrifice. Jesus' priesthood offers a better sacrifice. And he makes this argument from 9.1 to 10.18. From 9.1 to 10.18. Now, because this subsection is so large, we're not going to walk in a linear fashion through, through the train of thought, but I'm going to grab some pieces from here and there and give you the overall point. The author does begin in 9.1 by reminding the reader about the setup in the old tabernacle. The old tabernacle was that centralized place of worship provided by the old covenant. And you had an order of imperfect priests offering animal sacrifices over and over and over. And the most important thing to note about that tabernacle is found in Hebrews 9.9. Hebrews 9.9. According to this arrangement, he's talking about the tabernacle, all its everything. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now, the reason that those sacrifices could not perfect the conscience is because according to 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. An animal cannot truly serve as a substitute for a man. And and that's what's being depicted in these sacrifices. This thing is being killed in order for your sin to be forgiven. That's what a sacrifice depicts. Well, an animal can't take the place of a man. Only a man can take the place of a man. And the inefficacy of those old animal sacrifices evidences the fact that, is evidenced in the fact that the, the, the Levitical priesthood They just kept offering those things over and over and over and over. And the author reasons that if those sacrifices had actually worked, if they had been able to take away sin, if they had been able to perfect the worshiper's conscience, if they had been able to to truly bring people near to God, they would have stopped offering them because they worked. The fact that they're offered over and over proves that they don't work. That's in chapter 10, verse 2. If those sacrifices work, there'd be no reason to offer them over and over because once you've put out a fire, you turn off the water. But you've got this constant water running, in a sense, in the Old Covenant because the fire isn't put out. He further reasons that since those sacrifices didn't work, they simply served as a constant reminder, oh yeah, we're still in our sins. We're still in our sins. We're still in our sins. I'm offering the same sacrifice I did last week, the same sacrifice I did last year, the same sacrifice I did 10 years ago. I'm doing it over and over and over, and there is blood everywhere. So much blood shed. No one brought near to God. All it does is remind me I'm still in my sins, still in my sins. So the tabernacle sacrifices of the Old Covenant offered under the old priesthood, they were insufficient to bring the sinner near to God. So think about this then. It's not then that there used to be a system that worked, the old Levitical priesthood, 
But now there's been an upgrade that works even better. The new covenant priesthood of Christ, what the, what the author of Hebrews is arguing is that the old system, it never worked in terms of an ability to truly bring people near to God. Now, here's something crucial to understand. That Old Testament system, it merely foreshadowed as a copy what is coming later, the heavenly things. It's, it's picturing what needs to happen for man in order for him to be forgiven. The earthly tabernacle symbolically pictured the true tabernacle where Jesus ministers. So the, the shadow and copy of the old system, that, that earthly tabernacle, it was instituted to act out, in a sense, what needs to happen in order for man to be reconciled to God. And what is it that needs to, be, needs to happen in order for man to be reconciled to God? Blood has to be shed. And it did that really well. It shed a lot of blood over and over and over. And it was teaching that every time an animal is sacrificed, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now just scan down to 9.22. He notes there in 9.22, again, without the shedding of blood, there is, there is no forgiveness of sin. The earthly tabernacle depicted that, but it did not accomplish that. It depicted that we need to shed blood in order to be forgiven. It not, did not accomplish it. It did not accomplish forgiveness through animal sacrifices. It depicted that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Those animal sacrifices in the earthly tabernacle, they did not themselves bring forgiveness. They did not themselves bring reconciliation with God because, once again, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But rather, all of those Old, Old Testament sacrifices, the priesthood, that whole system, it foreshadowed the one sacrifice that can and does take away sin, which is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, look with me at Hebrews 9.11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he's talking about the tabernacle, it's the same, same, same image, as tabernacle, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is that, that Jesus actually did in the heavenly, heavenly tabernacle what the Levitical priesthood in the earthly tabernacle merely foreshadowed. Jesus entered the true sanctuary, not with animal blood, but with His own blood. And why is that crucial? It's crucial because an animal can't take the place of a man. Only a man can take the place of a man. And so Jesus, with His own blood, entered the true tabernacle. On the cross, Jesus' blood was shed. His blood was poured out. Through the shedding of His blood, there came true forgiveness of sins because 9.28 says, He suffered to bear the sin of many. He's taking on Himself sin and guilt of all of His people. He is dying for it there on the cross. He is, he is our substitute in order to remove the wrath of God. Jesus' blood, therefore, is the only blood 
that can secure an eternal redemption, as he calls it in 9.12. An eternal redemption that ensures an eternal inheritance, which is God's rest in heaven. So Jesus' priesthood is superior in that he offers a sacrifice that actually brings sinners to God. And it's the sacrifice of his own life. So a, a first reason that Jesus' sacrifice is better is because it actually did what the, what the old pictures only pictured. A second reason that his sacrifice is better is in chapter 10. Scan down to 5 through 11, 10, 5 through 11. This is a quotation from Psalm 40. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. And the, the, the author then reasons from Psalm 40 that the old sacrifices, the shadows, they must now be obsolete since the substance has come. The shadow, what, what they were picturing, it's now here. We don't need the shadows anymore. Those sacrifices have now been removed in the accomplishment of the once for all sacrifice of Christ. In, in other words, not only don't those old animal sacrifices not work, but they have been done away with by God when He sacrificed His Son once for all. And what does it mean that Jesus was sacrificed once for all? Well, if we reason from what He said about the, the Old Testament sacrifices, it means that He's done. It means that it actually worked. It means that the, the, the sinner's conscience has been made clear so that we can draw near to God. So Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice, and the author provides additional clarity regarding the sense in which Jesus' priesthood is, is superior then. He, he, he is teaching us that, that Jesus is not the better of two available options. Not the case. He's superior in that He is the only option. The other no longer exists. It existed simply to testify to the coming of better things in Christ. Now that Christ has, has come, it's done away with. And then he goes back to quote from Jeremiah 31 regarding the new covenant. He argues that Jesus has gained forgiveness for His people. Therefore, Hebrews 10.18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Once again, why were those Old Testament sacrifices offered over and over and over? Because they did not provide true forgiveness. Why does Jesus sit down after His priestly work, never making another offering again? Because His work is finished. He has secured our forgiveness with God such that we are reconciled to Him and we may draw near to Him for eternity. Bottom line, those old sacrifices, they never saved. They certainly don't save now that they've gone away. There's one sacrifice available for the reconciliation of sinners to God, and it is Jesus Christ. As, we, as we've noted many times in this series, most of us are not going to be tempted to go back to Old Testament Judaism because we don't come from Old Testament Judaism. 
So if, if we're tempted to leave Christ, it likely is not going to be to go back to this old system, sacrificing animals and, and all the other things that go with it. But we may be tempted to turn to things other than that. We may be tempted to turn to our own brand of some kind of priesthood. Maybe it's self-help. Maybe I've found YouTube to be an absolute treasure trove of telling me what buttons I can push in my life to make my life better. Guess what? That covenant won't change your heart. Press those buttons all you want. You will still be dead in your trespasses and sins. You will still be selfish. You will still be lost. There's only one priest that brings us closer to God. Other functional priests, maybe, maybe other religions, as we've already mentioned. Maybe it's atheism. Maybe, maybe my answer is, there, there is no God. There's no one for me to be reconciled with. Romans chapter 1 teaches that you are a worshiper whether you like it or not. And when you reject God, you have, you have no choice but to worship something else. So you may say that there's no God, you know that there's a God. And even as you hate Him and don't want to worship Him, you're going to worship something else. There are no atheists. But if for a minute you convince yourself that you are, you will be fully convinced otherwise when you reach Judgment Day and you find, whoa, there is a God, it is the God of the Bible, and my atheism has not prepared me one iota for the conversation that I'm about to have with the judge. I suggest to you that all these other options, in the end, they will serve to do exactly what the old covenant served to do, which is to demonstrate two things. Their inability to make one right with God and the singular ability of Christ to make one right with God. Choose whatever you want. It's going to do those two things for you in the end. It will show you that it can't get you to God, and it will show you that only Christ can. And it may be only on the last day that you admit those things, but whatever functional God, whatever functional priesthood you choose, it will show you those two things. And this will be the tragedy of tragedies. For you to have waited until Judgment Day to acknowledge what you've heard this morning, which is that Jesus is the only way So I'm telling you, if if you gamble with another way, if you gamble with with Islam or self-help or or, or YouTube, people, whatever it is, if you gamble some other way, you will only be disappointed to find on Judgment Day that Christ actually was the only game in town. But then it will be too late. And so, as we come to the end of this section of Hebrews, we return to His main exhortation. This is what He wants us to do in light of all these things we've seen. That is, hold fast and approach because Jesus is the great high priest. Let's look at 1019. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast the confidence of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Since Christ has actually done what what other priesthoods fail to do, which is that He has He's actually reconciled people to God. What the author here wants us to do, first of all, is draw near to God. Take, take full advantage of what Christ has done for you. Enjoy fellowship with, fellowship with Him with the full assurance of one who has by faith had your conscience cleansed by the pure blood of Jesus Christ. Don't let fellowship with the eternal God of the universe be, be like an occasional detail of your life. And certainly don't let lesser things come in and be the mainstay of your life. Jesus said, this is life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is life. So don't make your life about lesser things. Don't be tentative about enjoying God. Christ has overwhelmed your sin. He has paved the way for you. What a tragedy then to miss out on active fellowship with Him through meditation on the Word and through prayer and through interaction with other saints. What a tragedy to miss out on all of that when it was bought for you at such a great price. The blood of Jesus Christ. Draw near, He says. Draw near to God. Enjoy Him. And then he returns to his final exhortation, hold fast your confession. Jesus and Jesus alone can be trusted. He who promised salvation from sin, he has kept that promise exclusively in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So hold fast to him. Don't let go. Don't latch on to anything else. Just Jesus. Jesus is superior. And that is true whether you're looking to turn back to Old Testament Judaism or you're tempted to look to anything else for hope. Jesus is superior in that He is the only way to God. Turning from Him is fatal. Turning toward Him in repentance and faith is essential. There's no other way. Those of you who are this morning perhaps hearing things that you've heard for the first time, Let me talk to you for just a moment. Let me assure you that the things that you have heard this morning, they are true. There is one God. Everyone descended from Adam is is conceived, estranged from that one God. They are doomed to hell because of their sins against this one God, and rightfully so, because He is good and holy and just. And the only way for sinners to be reconciled to God such that they live the life they were created to live, which is enjoy fellowship with Him eternally. The only way for that to happen is for the sinner, you, like many of us have done, to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone, knowing that He is the only one, the only priest, with the only covenant, with the only sacrifice that can make you right with God. You may have questions about that, And if you do, please grab somebody who's sitting around you. This room is filled with people who who can answer your questions, would love to answer your questions. I'll be available to talk as well. Other words, as well, we have have elders 
that, that will be here as well. would love to talk to you. So please don't leave this place without having those questions answered. Those of you who do know the Lord Jesus Christ, do exactly what the author of Hebrews has said here this morning. Hold fast to Him in faith and boldly approach the throne of grace to help you endure to the last day. Let's pray. Father, it's a delight to have your word in front of us, to to be able to read it in our own language. It's a delight to have been ministered to by your Holy Spirit as he has helped us to understand the big picture of this this section. We pray that he would continue to minister to us by working these things deeper into our minds and hearts. Because it likely is the case that many of us are flirting with Functional priesthoods, Father. Things that, that, that we believe may bring us closer to you or closer to another God. We pray that you would grant us to believe what we've read this morning, to put all of those things aside and to see that Jesus is the great high priest. He is the only way to get us to you. And so, Lord, move us then to hold fast to him and to draw near to you. Father, we also pray for those among us who do not know the Lord Jesus, who have not turned from their sin and trusted in Him. We pray that today would be the day. Would you please bring pressure upon their soul? The pressure of the reality of their spiritual condition and their eventual eternity away from you. Help them to feel the weight of that, Lord. Pray that you would be so gracious as to help them feel the guilt of their sin. Help them to acknowledge that it is right that they have been wrong to sin against you. Lord, move them to confess that sin, turn from it, and trust in Jesus. That we might all move forward, holding fast to our confession and drawing near to you as that day approaches. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.